Hello, friends. This is Seth Itzcan with Soil for Climate. We're a nonprofit organization advocating for soil restoration as a climate solution. It is our honor to be hosting in this webcast today Matt Russell, the executive director of Iowa Interfaith Power and Light. They're a faith based organization advocating for, um, uh, for climate change uh, mitigation and with a strong emphasis on the role of farmers. Um, particularly, you know, in Iowa where they're based, farmers and ranchers helping to restore soil um, to create better food, reduce um, the, um, uh, um, the threat of droughts and floods, mitigating climate, and also even producing better food. So faith-based organization in Iowa, um, climate-focused, and farmer rancher focus really standing with farmers and ranchers and um, um excuse me i have to ask uh everybody to uh have their uh mics on mute if you're participant if you're a guest so we're really honored to, to have matt here and um if if you've been reading some of the promo materials that i've been putting out um he's been getting a lot of excellent press for his cause and for this movement, several opinion pieces in the New York Times, uh, um, a, a whole feature story in Mother Jones, and a fantastic, really over-the-top fantastic um, video piece in in Today, and um, and I creep I put a link to that on the Soil for Climate Facebook group, and I, I just watched it a couple of minutes ago, and it really is a fantastic video piece. It's just a couple minutes, and it just hits all the right points. Um, so I encourage everyone, you know, as soon as this is over or even in a separate browser window, w watch that that video production because it really was perfect. So now without further ado, Matt, uh, welcome. Thank you to the Soil for Climate show. Seth, thanks a lot. I'm really excited to be with you all today. Now, um, Matt, let's just jump right into it. Tell people a little bit about um, your background, your advocacy with uh, Iowa Interfaith Power and Light as a climate as a faith-based climate organization, but then specifically get into the role of um, of of, uh, of of your support for farmers and how you see farmers and rancher ranchers really being instrumental in this. And I'm going to uh, take myself off camera. All right. So I'm a I'm a fifth generation Iowa farmer. Um, I've been in agriculture all my life. Uh, I, I early on was going to be a Catholic priest, so I had um, lots of religious education f and did faith work teaching in a religious school and working with Catholic rural life, so working nationally with the Catholic Church and other churches on, on uh, sustainable agriculture and food security. Um, I, I then spent about 17 years secular world working on food policy and rural development. And then the last year and a half, I've been leading Iowa Interfaith Power and Light. So it's really a culmination of my life experience coming together to lead this organization. We work, at, we're part of an affiliate, we're, we're an affiliate of national Interfaith Power and Light. There's about 40 state affiliates. We work in Iowa. And when they hired me, I said, if, if you hire me, we're going to develop a farm program where we are getting farmers into church basements, talking to each other to define the problem of climate change as they see it and define the solutions to climate change that they as farmers can participate in. And so um, it's, it's really a culmination of my life experiences that 
I realized that if farmers are not leading the solutions to, to climate change, then we're not going to be able to benefit from the value of what we can do on our farms. So I'll hand it back to you, Seth, and give more detail as we go along. Okay, Matt, thanks. So um, obviously this is an election year and um, I want people to see um, uh, this screenshot from this video. Um, I'm gonna go on, um, on just uh, audio only. Um, you know, so, so there's former Vice President Joe Biden with you. Um, talk, talk for a little bit about um, the politicians that are coming through Iowa right now as we come into the election season. And what's the message you want them to hear? Well, our, our message is really putting farmers in a leadership position. Um, what are, and, and we asked the farmers some questions in a facilitated discussion. Um, and we, what we really wanted them to do was to, to think about how they as a farmer are called by their faith to the vocation of farming. And then what does that mean in this climate crisis? And what the farmers came up with is that the economics are all wrong, that the farmers who want to do high level stewardship, they, they have to pay the cost, they have to, to bear the risk, um, and they don't get much economic reward from doing that. And a farmer that really wants to just abuse their land and not put any conservation in, in practice, they pay no, very little cost. There's actually some economic benefits short term for them doing that. Um, all the public policy still supports them for the most part with very few penalties. So the farmers themselves said, we're upside down. We have to change the economics so that when we do the right thing, that we actually are economically rewarded for that, which is a great message because we know that the resources are coalescing globally around fixing climate change. So it's a great opportunity for farmers to see themselves as part of the solution in the future of climate action and then using their political power to leverage um, leverage the opportunities to get when they put practices on their farm that have this public value of reducing emissions and capturing carbon that they get compensated at some level for the value of what they're doing if we can make that happen then we we change we really change the economics on farms and we start driving practices that that help communities rural communities farmers and the whole world and so with that message developed by farmers, we've been able to get that um, to the presidential campaigns because they're all in Iowa. And you know, I've used my own history, um, the history of Iowa Interfaith Power and Light, working with some of these folks across the state before I was the executive director. So it's been a real, um, we, we've, we've been able to get farmers not only to develop the message, but then to be willing to speak that message publicly. And so that's what you're seeing in the media is farmers willing to talk to the press about how they can be part of the solution for climate change, but, but we've got to change the economics so that they're rewarded and paid for the services that they provide. Now, Matt, um, uh, I know that um, uh, there are five principles that you sort of advocate for in terms of your solution of working with fire, uh, uh, farmers in the climate change solution. Can you just go over those now briefly with our audience? Yeah, we call them the five practice areas, and and they are the the first practice area is energy. So how can we create and and generate energy on our farm? And Iowa farmers have done that with with ethanol. So we know how to use public policy around energy, um, and and we've done it really well with wind. So we put wind out on our farms, wind generation, and we're seeing it with solar. Um, so so and and we're seeing it with the methane digesters. So 
there's really an opportunity for farmers to generate energy. So that's the first practice area. But then the conservation practice areas are um, uh, conservation tillage. How do we till the soil as little as possible? Um, permaculture. Um, how do we have something growing all the time uh, on our farms? So cover crops are an example of that. Um, woody vegetation is also an example of that. So we're putting in a buffer strip. Can we, can we add a, a greater, um, can we add stuff that's going to grow all the time? And then we need to extend the crop rotation. So how do we grow more things instead of just corn and soybeans on 23 million acres in Iowa? How do we add new crops into that rotation? Um, and, 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 and so diversity. And then the final thing is integrating livestock. So how do we bring livestock back into a, a whole farm system versus compartmentalizing? We've got hogs over here and then row crops over here and then cattle over here. Um, how, do we, how do we integrate those, those livestock systems with our cropping systems at a much higher level? So managed grazing is a great example of, of how you would integrate livestock. Grazing back your cover crops. Um, using the nutrients in your pork facility as a nutrient versus just finding ways to dump the waste. And even though everybody talks about it as a nutrient, we still see a lot of practices where there's dumping the waste. Um, so we have a really leaky system right now, environmentally leaky system, and we're not really paying the cost for that. So if we shift our agricultural practices around these five practice areas and challenge farmers to innovate, not just practice by practice, but really integrating all of those things together, and if we create an economic system that pays them for doing that, so when they do that at a higher level and come up with new ways of doing it, that they get paid for it, then we've really shifted and we've we've kind of went from horses and harnesses to tractors and and, and uh, hybrids. So if you think about the 1930s, you know, it was horses and harnesses and we were transitioning into the future with tractors and hybrids and petrochemicals. We're at that same point where the next 10 to 20 years we have to make a radical shift from using fossil fuels to, to force our farms to do things to using creation and the diversity of creation to manage living systems to deliver the benefits that the world wants, which is food, but it's also environmental services. And if we're not putting environmental services into the business model of our farms, we're, we're really we're holding on to horses and harnesses rather than you know investing in the future. Well, Matt, um, thank you for that. Uh, for those five principles, and I encourage people to um, go to the Interfaith Power and Light website to see the articulation of them. Um, the last one, of course, is of interest to me and to the climate community, which is integrating livestock. Um, really quickly, how do you get that message across? And, and also, I just want to say something to the viewers. In that video that I talked about from the Today Show, where there's a spotlight on Matt, they talk about when you bought the um, the property, it was originally soy and corn, and then you converted to pasture and 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 and, and crops um, and grazing. What for you told you? Okay, you needed to get back to grazing, and how do you get that message of integrating livestock out there, particularly in a state like Iowa, which is so heavy into soy and corn? Yeah, well, because I I you know I grew up on a farm. And, and, and then I was doing work in sustainable agriculture with Catholic World Life when I moved back to, to Des Moines. I spent a few years outside the state, moved back. And, and I, I really was working in agriculture and very excited about the possibility of, of, of having my own farm. 
part of it was I was if I was you know kind of preaching that there were these opportunities in sustainable and alternative agriculture, then why wasn't I doing it myself? Why wasn't I putting skin in the game? And so when when my husband Pat and I bought our farm in 2005, um, we, we, we took possession January of 2005. So we're coming up on finishing up our 15th year on the farm. The idea was is how can we manage this 110 acres so that it's profitable, that it's regenerative, that it's connecting um, our farm with consumers in Des Moines. We're about 45 minutes from Des Moines. So there was a customer base. And I grew up in the 80s. So I watched my family navigate the farm crisis of the 1980s. Our bank went bankrupt um, when I was 14. So I was very risk averse when it came to capitalization. And so for me, you know, taking this 110 acres and, and which was about 60 acres was in row crops and transitioning that into rotational grazing and then fruits and vegetables. Um, that was an opportunity for us to, to, to take 110 acres and really make it um, a viable farm. Um, we, we rehabilitated the house, the barn, um, you know, put ponds in, watering systems, um, and then built up our demand for, for grass-finished beef, and we sell beef directly. Uh, we've started to sell a few feeder calves now because our demand has gone down a little bit just because we don't work as hard at the farmer's market. We, you know, we're older and we're tired. Um, so, so it really was a matter of taking public policy so we could use a lot of USDA programs um, to help us implement the kind of transition we wanted um, around the EQIP program, the CRP, the CSP, these federal programs. So they really, the taxpayers really helped us transition our farm. Um, and, and, and so we've got better water quality, um, we've got better soil health, um, and we've been able to do all of that, you know, with, with Pat full-time on the farm. So in 2006, he quit his job and he's been full-time on the farm. So our farm supports one full-time, you know, one full-time person in the house, and then I work full-time off the farm, which is pretty typical of the American farmer or the American farm family. Now, um, Matt, you, you have said um, emphatically that the, the farmer rancher has to be part of the climate conversation and has to be front and center of it. Um, how do you do that? How do you encourage the farmer themselves to take a leadership role, which may, many of them may be timid, frankly, to do? And how do you get the, the general public, including the politicians, to consider farmers and ranchers as part of the climate solution, which they might also be um, hesitant to do? Yeah. Um, I knew in talking with farmers around the state, these are Republican farmers and Democratic farmers, um, commodity farmers, livestock farmers, I knew that a lot of farmers were not climate skeptics, but the culture around Iowa agriculture, and I think this is true nationally to some extent, culture around agriculture has been that farmers who are climate skeptics have been resourced, invested in, mobilized, um, organized. And so the, 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 the conventional wisdom is that farmers are climate skeptics and they're conservative politically and they're climate skeptics. Um, and the effort has been to change their minds uh, by convincing them that what they're doing is causing climate change. So they've got to change. And the other more recent one is look how much you're suffering. You're victims of climate change. And are you, know, are you finally ready to, to give in and become you know, climate change advocates? Well, none of that's appealing to farmers in terms of their own identity. So when farmers that are climate skeptics 
are rewarded for being climate skeptics at you know at the coffee shop, at the co-op, uh, at at the county farm bureau meeting, um, in the media, and and in the press, you know, it, with with politicians. When that message is rewarded, and anybody who questions that message is essentially marginalized or punished, they're not going to step up. Um, and particularly on the right, the Republican farmers, they were really not getting any support for being climate advocates um, or, or advocates for climate solutions, climate change solutions. What we did is we changed, we brought farmers together to talk about this. And then, I, I mean, we kind of knew it ahead of time, but we really let it develop in the conversations is inviting them to think about themselves as part of the solution. So the right, you know, wasn't encouraging them to be part of the solution. The left wasn't encouraging them to be part of the solution. Um, but farmers themselves, problem solving is part of our deep identity. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you're a crop farmer or livestock farmer, especially crop farmer, you know, in the South, in the North, wherever you are in the United States and really in the world, if you're a farmer, your identity is you wake up in the morning and you solve problems. And so helping farmers see this, this situation in that context was inviting them to engage with climate action from their own deep identity versus what we've been asking them to do in terms of climate action is to abandon their identity. You know, You've got to embrace the victimhood. You've got to embrace that you're the cause, and you've got to, and, and, you know, and you're, it's your fault. When it's all of our faults, right? It's and we're all victims. But the unique thing for farmers is that we can be part of the solution in ways that other other people can't. Well, um, well, Matt, when when these political, you know, figures like Biden and and uh, the other Democratic candidates, or even well, obviously there aren't other Republican candidates in the presidential election, but but you know, the Republican candidates of other elections come by, and they meet and they meet with farmers. How do you facilitate that conversation around climate? I mean, help help us be a fly in the wall so we can see what that's like. Yeah. So what what we've done, and, and we first did it with media. So I knew that we could get farmers talking to each other because I knew farmers weren't as much of climate skeptics as conventional wisdom, and, and that it really serves. It really serves some global industries to keep farmers as climate skeptics. So if we slow, if we if we engage in, in climate action, if we can slow that down, <clears throat> that benefits the oil, the fossil fuel industry. There's also some evidence that it benefits kind of agribusiness because fast climate action really changes things in ways that some of the very large global agribusinesses they, they're not as adapt. They're, they can't adapt to those changes as fast as work as farmers are able to implement. And so they're not interested in really accelerating us in implementing those five practice areas. So we already have that working against us. Um, but what we do is we get farmers talking about like, so we go directly to farmers. We're not trying to, to work at the leadership level of, of farm organizations. We're actually working with farmers and, and, my hope was is that we could get farmers talking to each other and then talking like publicly and then being able to engage the candidates as well as our congressional uh, delegation, which is both Republican and Democrat. So how do we create on ramps for our congressional leadership, to, whether they're Republican or Democrat, to be part of helping farmers be this be part of the solution? 
So that was our strategy. And I thought it would take, you know, quite a while. And I thought we'd have a little bit of success. What I, what I underestimated was how quickly farmers were willing to say, yeah, you can come visit my farm, Mr. Reporter for Mother Jones. I ran for, you know, I, I'm a Republican farmer, but yeah, I'll have you come and we can talk about climate change on my farm and what I'm doing to capture carbon. Um, so that happened much sooner than I thought, which actually meant that I underestimated how willing farmers would be to like lean into this invitation to be part of the solution. So once that started to snowball, um, then the campaigns started to, to connect with us. They started reaching out because they saw the, the media pieces. They saw this new way of thinking about farmers as part of the solution. And so then once they started reaching out to us, we were able to connect them with farmers. And so, you know, um, early on, Buttigieg, uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke, he came to our farm by himself. I mean, he came and, and it was just me. But then when Biden came and when Harris came, we made sure that there were other farmers there. And then we've been really helping um, farmers connect with campaigns to really amplify this message. Um, and we're also working with farmers who aren't Democrats to work with our Republican elected officials so that they're inviting these these officials to see, you know, that there is an opportunity here for for Iowa farmers to benefit from engaging in climate solutions. So the really key is we're not asking farmers to change their identity. We're actually asking farmers to embrace their identity as problem solvers and then collectively use that to reshape the, the conversation about climate action. And then the feedback is, is that is that we're also then not just not just changing the narrative, but encouraging farmers to think creatively about how they would take those five practice areas and innovate on their farms. And for the most part, this is an exciting thing, right? If I'm a farmer at the family scale and I see an opportunity to use my resources as a, as a family, as a farm, you know, the land that we farm, what we like to do, and then develop strategies around all of that, that the world's saying that they need and we get paid for it, it's a very optimistic, exciting proposition. Okay, um, Matt, so, but but bring us in a little bit more to like, okay, Joe Biden is standing next to you in that picture we showed. Um, you know, what are you, what are you telling him? And, and, and what are the other farmers who are gathering around telling him? And what is, you know, what is he hearing? And what is he saying? Yeah, so I mean, the message that, that, that our, that our farmers are saying, and so let's, let's take, you know, um, the Bidens, uh, Joe Biden and and his wife Jill and Tom Vilsack, former Secretary of Agriculture, and his wife Christy. So the four of them were with with us at our farm, and and so my neighbor Justin, who's corn and soybeans, um, has had some cattle. His family has cattle. He's not he doesn't have cattle right now at his farm, um, but he's done just some amazing things on his farm. He 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 ended up buying his farm very similar to when I bought we bought ours. So we're kind of like exactly the same time, and he has really rehabilitated a kind of a rundown farm. Um, and both of us have used all of these environmental conservation programs. So what we're saying is we're, we're saying, look at what the taxpayers have done, how they've helped us, you know, manage our small family farms in a way that are successful for us and beneficial to the public around water quality and economic development. At least on our farm, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, hiring kids, redoing barns, building ponds, you, you know, 
lots of lots of money that translates in the community. So we tell that story, like look at what we've been able to do partnering with taxpayers. And then we pivot to, and the world is asking for climate solutions. And we are ready, our farms are ready to put trees, to do more intensive grazing, um, but none of the programs are, are, are targeted at helping us do that. So if we do that, we can do it and we can benefit the world, but it's, our, it's out of our pocket to make those investments. When we spend billions of dollars in public taxpayer dollars, you know, supporting the current system, we're investing in horses and harnesses when we need to be investing in the next agricultural revolution that all the science is signaling that's going to happen. And, and the question isn't, is it going to happen? It's, will it happen fast enough? And so that's the leadership position. And then when we look at the supply chains, you know, we can also talk to candidates about, look, Unilever, General Mills, ADM, these big companies are all saying, we need, we're, we're ready to, to invest in a more sustainable supply chain. And so again, it's, we need to be able to access those resources. So smart public policy, just like we did with ethanol, smart public policy, and then markets on top of it, just like we did with wind, smart public policy, and then markets on top of it. So climate services, smart public policy to position American farmers to be able to leverage the markets that are emerging. And, and the markets are really around environmental services versus another product. But what's interesting is if we can do all of that, we can implement those five practice areas. We not only, if we can get paid for the value of that, we also then are displacing those products that are emitters. So we're getting rid of nitrogen, we're, we're reducing our, our use of nitrogen and reducing nitrate, uh, nitrate emissions. We're, we're capturing the carbon through our grazing systems. Um, by, you know, we're holding more carbon in the soil by not tilling. Um, so that's, that's the, it's really, you know, helping them understand that the world is changing. This isn't about making the world change. It's, it's leadership in how the world is changing. Our grandparents, our parents, you know, we led the green revolution. America led the, 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 the innovation that allowed us to increase productivity. And if you want to, if you only want to say how horrible that was, and you can, there's a lot to be critical about, you know, the last 70 years. But there's also been some really amazing things that have happened in that last 70 years. And so if we lean on the, the good things that happened and then those are done, right? Like, like it's not that we, that the world went completely out of control using fossil fuels. We did a lot of great things. Literacy went up and food security went up and women got more empowered. Like there were a lot of good things. So you don't demonize what farmers and the green revolution, but you are honest about where we're headed. And if we do not make that transition in the next 20 years, then not only will we not move into the abundant future that's possible, we're gonna lose all of those gains that have been made. And we're already seeing it. We're already seeing on every indicator, the, the climate feedback top of the kind of feedback mechanism that that is starting to destroy all that we've gained. And so biggest problem in the world, farmers can solve it and we can solve it from who we are and we can look to our history to draw from, but we can't replicate just like, you know, it, 
you didn't invest in bigger horses and stronger harnesses, right? We can't invest in monoculture, heavily use of fossil fuels, narrowing of genetics, segregating livestock from cropping systems. Like that all has to change. It doesn't mean we get rid of corn and soybeans. It doesn't, obviously, it doesn't mean we get rid of livestock. But how do we how do we creatively bring that together for the next revolution? And only farmers can do that because at the top of the supply chain, they do not have a self-interest in accelerating fast change. Well, Matt, that's a bit of a tirade, but that's <laughs> your tirade is welcome with us. Can <clears throat> I get a yebo on that? Yebo. Yebo. Okay, it's time to say yebo in the show. Um, your tirade is welcome with us. Um, um, Matt, quick logistical thing. I see it's it's about half past the hour now, and um, there's a lot of good questions coming in from the audience. Is it possible we could go a little bit past um, to your time, three our time, or is that a hard stop for you? Um, I, I we can go about two ten. I've got to I've got to I've got to do something at two fifteen. So okay. for me, three fifteen for you. So three ten. I'm good till then. Okay, and um, and. And you can continue to answer questions in the Facebook group via text if we don't get to them today, right? Okay. Yeah, I can jump on and do that. Okay, fine. Because there are there are some great questions that have come in. Um, but but uh, you even wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times, where, and I encourage people to read it, where you said, you know, it's time to cut farmers a check. So so let let's get to the brass tax here. Uh, but it's not a tax. Um, what check are you talking about? Who's going to write it and, wh and what is it going to be for? Well, that all has to be developed. Like there, we are really doing, and, and, and this is hard for some people to kind of get to, particularly funders. They don't understand the work that we're doing. Everybody wants to jump to policy, right? What are the policies? And everybody wants to jump to practices. What are the practices? And what we're saying is we can't even get to those unless we empower farmers to be in charge of the narrative. And, and unless farmers are, are really driving home the notion that we can solve this problem, but we have to change the economics and therefore we have to change the policies and we have to shift from basically rewarding those at the top of the supply chain with the market power to rewarding the farmers on the ground who can innovate. And, and so, it's that message that we're that we're developing, and so, for example, and I see some of the questions like, what you know, what's the strategy or what's the policy, what's the or to your what's the check? Our our position isn't here's the practice that we need this check for. It's the notion, it's the idea, and this is how we talk to candidates, like their staff. I would say, as as I'm talking to them, trying to help them understand what farmers are saying in our groups, right, and to the media. What farmers are saying, I said, think about think about your your consultants, right? Like your 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 candidate and your campaign staff, they understand that you go to a consultant, you say, here's our problem. And the consultant looks and says, okay, we will do some research. So you're gonna pay us for the research, and then we will we will give you something, a service, and then you're gonna pay us for that service, right? In other words, you're you're you got these entrepreneurs out there who are really creative. That you're paying for their creativity. It's the same thing with farmers. You're saying, look, nobody can manage this land better than you. And we need you to figure out this problem. So here's some resources to figure it out, partner with Extension. And, and you know, our land grant has to change. 
and they're not going to change unless farmers demand them ch to change. So, so it's you know here I am innovating, uh, getting paid, or or at least cost share risk management to allow me to innovate, and then when I come up with good solutions that actually have public benefits, then I'm actually not just getting cost share, but I'm getting something for the value of that. So in terms of in terms of capturing carbon, if I can come up with a system where I'm reducing emissions on my whole farm, and uh, then there's some value to that. If I can actually make it eventually make it you know negative, so that uh, over time my farm in its agricultural systems is capturing more carbon than it's reducing, I now have created a benefit that the world is starting to trade. Cut me the check. I, I, I don't want somebody else capturing the benefit of what I'm doing on my farm. You know, I need paid for some of the value of that benefit so that I can accelerate the change and innovate even more. And I can hold on to that and invest some of that in my community. So it's holding on to the value for the farm and the community. Um, Matt, um, hallelujah. I want to give you a high five on that. All right. All right. So there we go. I know, and you know, a yebo. But hallelujah, and yebo, and 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 I, that you're speaking gospel to us, and and um, and 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 I know the soil for climate community. You know, we have a lot of um, um, conservative folks who they don't want to hear about attacks or even attacks on carbon, which personally I think is okay. But anyway, that's I'm not advocating for that right now. The point is, we are talking about rewarding the land managers who are capturing carbon, right. and. Um, and for it to be captured, to be verified, um, there has to be measurement. The measurement right. ne needs to be done by a third party. Those people have to be paid, you know, if they're going out and doing it. So um, and from my opinion, this is where the policy space comes from. There needs to be yeah. policy set up at the state level to have people who are going to go out and measure soil carbon, and not just soil carbon. You know, there are a bunch of of measurements, biodiversity, water infiltration, bulk density, fungal right. bacterial ratio, bird species, for crying out loud, there's a lot of indicators. A lot of the stuff can even be done remotely from satellite and with drones, but whatever it is, we need policy to monitor uh, land quality uh, at either a direct carbon measurement or, or other items that are proxies of carbon. And, and to reward these land managers. So we're 100% behind that. And the farmers themselves need to be involved in the policy formation. I, I, I think that's your real gestalt, isn't it? You're saying you're not, you're not recommending this particular policy, this payment. You're saying the farmers need to be sort of in the room, right? That's the bottom line. That is the bottom line. And we have spent, there have been billions of dollars spent to keep farmers from being at the table. So that there are some farm organizations at the table does not mean that farmers are at the table because a lot of farm organizations have been slow walking and engagement with climate action so if that's who's at the table representing farmers they're actually keeping us from being part of the solution and getting paid for being part of that solution and developing you know developing the policies that are going to accelerate and reward the action that's needed Okay. The action that's needed is reducing emissions, capturing carbon. Yeah. Matt, I want to be sensitive of time. There's a ton of great questions coming in. You can see the feed. By the way, folks, we can see the feed here. 
Um, great questions. It really is a tribute to our group that there's so many smart people. Obviously, he can't get to all of them um, now, but he sees them and he'll continue via text, um, you know, to answer as many as he can. In the, in the meantime, right now, I do want to bring in some of my colleagues. Oh, I want to put a shout out to our underwriter, Nutiva, uh, as a company that focuses on 100% organic uh, hemp and CBD products. And they have, in fact, I'm just going to throw up their logo so people can see it. Um, and they have um, a program called 1% for Regenerative Agriculture. So 1% of profits go to help support um, groups. And, and they've been um, underwriting our media effort, and we greatly appreciate it. Okay, so that's a shout out to them. And um, if there are other groups, uh, organizations that can help Soil for Climate, uh, please contact me and, and we need underwriters and sponsors to, to keep this going. Um, I want to bring in my colleague Carl Tiedemann and then my colleague Josie Watson. They each have a question for you. I'm going to take myself out. Hi, Matt. Nice to Hello. be with you today. How are you? Very good. Very good. Good. A uh, couple of quick questions. One, uh, I've just been wondering, uh, we all heard about the terrible weather uh, afflicting farm country this season and I'm wondering on, on a personal note how you've, you've fared. Uh, did eventually the weather catch up to, um, to make it a good season for you? How, how did things go? So we get that, I get that question a lot from media and what I keep trying to tell them this, that there are, there are climate catastrophes, and we certainly saw that in the Mississippi River Valley this year, lots of farms being devastated by extreme weather. But what every farmer is experiencing across the whole globe is this narrowing of the windows in which you can do things. So we're seeing a lot more stress, and that's what Pat and I experienced on our farm, is that even 15 years ago, what we could expect to do, the windows for making hay, for rotating cattle, um, those windows have all gotten smaller and and it creates a lot of stress. So for us, it's that decision-making, problem-solving stress that is a direct result of the changing climate that's only, only going to get worse. And, and so I think helping people move past, like obviously the extremes are important, but it's not these isolated extremes it, that are the only problem. It's, it's everybody, we're in this together. And and how are we in that together? And then how do we, you know, how can we fix it together? So thank you for the question. Um, but but we have not been devastated. Uh, we've been able to adapt, but the adaptation itself is very stressful. Understood. And my second question was: um, Have the uh, the tariffs, uh, the farming tariffs, affected you and the farmers around you? Or do you have any thoughts on that you'd like to share? Thank you. Yeah, so my thought on the tariffs is this. We have used public policy and those billions of dollars of resources to put band-aids um, around trade trade policy. And there are some who, who would claim that that trade policy has been a failure. Others would say, no, that's what's needed. But clearly, the reason we need the tariff bailouts is because the trade policy has not been uh, happening the way that those who implemented it promised that it would. 
And so this is a band-aid. This is stopping the hemorrhaging. My biggest concern is that in the next five to 10 years, I need the taxpayers who've already partnered with me and have shown a tremendous willingness to partner with farmers to be part of the solution for food security, for environmental benefits, um, for economic development. We have a long history in this country of taxpayers partnering with farmers. And my, my biggest concern is that we just used up a whole bunch of goodwill because those billions of dollars are not are not delivering much benefit to the larger public. If we had taken $28 billion and said, we're gonna, we're gonna partner with farms to help solve the climate crisis, those dollars would have multiplied, we would have seen a whole bunch of benefits and that's what we need. And, and so the real question with the, the trade, the, you know, the, the bailout money is that it's, it, it, it is really a, not only a wasted opportunity, but a really misplaced opportunity that, that's gonna make what's really needed more challenging. Thank you. Okay, uh, Matt, thank you for that. Uh, thank you, Carl, for that question. And now, Matt, I want to bring in my colleague, Josie Watson. And uh, she has, a, she has a, a question for you and some exciting things to share. All right. <clears throat> She'll be with us in a second. Thank you so I much, can see Matt. Her. It's so exciting to hear from you. Thanks, Seth, for bringing me in. So I... I've been working on a Northeast regional soil health um, organizing project, essentially based out of, um, it's based out of Tufts University, but our idea was to really try and experiment with a farmer-led um, soil health policy, policy advocacy campaign, um, just because in the Northeast, just like in a lot of other regions, um, farm advocacy groups tend to take center stage in the conversations, um, especially at state houses, and in conjunction with the fact that just the federal situation seemed completely out of the question for supporting farmers who are asking for pretty immediate support. Um, just the concept of working with states gained a ton of popularity in Northeast states really quickly. And I think What's interesting about the Northeast concept, um, context is that it gains salience quickly just because our farm infrastructure is so unsupported right now, considering we have predominantly medium to small size farms. And even a lot of the large farms in Northeast states would be considered medium sized farms when compared to the rest of the country. So they face pretty crazy economic pressure just from the way that the system nationally has been set up. Um, and so when farmers in the Northeast states sort of ask for more support, they're asking for it because they can't access USDA programs like EQIP. They can't access them. Um, maybe one of their neighbors has enough acreage to apply for a grant worth $2 million to help with their, you know, manure processing. But, you know, meanwhile, the smaller dairy farm next door is having trouble applying for a grant to come up with a dairy composting system for his for his livestock, like Jack Laser in Vermont of Butterworks Farm. And so I was wondering if you've ever thought about just in terms of, you know, putting farmers in charge of the innovation narrative that leads to policy and changing the economics, rewarding farmers on the ground. If 
if you've observed any sort of strategy that has to do with forming partnerships with really local structures like conservation districts or NRCS offices that could lead to state action, if any that anything that you've observed in Iowa or in the Midwest could be transferred to some of the people who are trying to work on this issue in the Northeast states, considering our support looks like is really gonna have to come from the local level or our farms are gonna go out of business by the time we can get the farm bill to change. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Um, yeah, so I would say the work we're doing is trying to, to lay the groundwork for what you're describing. Right. And the reason that what you're describing can't happen is because farmers have been taken out of the innovation loop. They've been taken out of the leadership loop. The, the political power that farmers have, um, and they still have an enormous amount of political power, they're not wielding it themselves. It's been kind of coalesced up, up the political supply chain um, to, to other organizations that maybe speak to a commodity versus yeah. farmers or that speak that have as much of a partnership with the supply chain as they do with the farmers themselves. Um, this is a real opportunity. So I look at I look at the climate crisis as a feedback. It's basically as a person of faith. It's basically saying, looking at it, saying this is the feedback that's saying we are not in right relationship. Mm -hmm. So how we're living together, how we're living with nature, that it has to change because if we don't change, then the consequences are really dire. So it's not like you know God or or the spirits or the universe is punishing us because you know we need to be punished. It's essentially creation saying, this is how it works. And if you keep doing it, it's gonna keep working this way. And so the invitation is to think about that differently. Um, so how do we get in right relationship with each other, with, with nature? So it's this huge opportunity which creates this 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 opportunity to you know as as Na I think it's Naomi Klein that wrote the book this changes everything I mean really the climate crisis changes everything the assumptions are all laid bare and so one of the assumptions has been that you know as as decision making moves up the supply chain we create more efficiencies uh, and farmers then implement those practices that are developed someplace other than on the farm, that farmers benefit because it's more efficient. But we look at what's happening, it's like that all goes out the window because it's no longer, even if, if it ever did kind of evolve the way or work the way that people said it did, um, there were always problems with it. They're really big problems now. So the opportunity is, is, is to do that work of, of re-engaging farmers as farmers across the political spectrum, across the production spectrum, um, to take a leadership role and invite other rural members and landowners to be part of that as well. And and that that isn't just around agriculture, that's around you know energy and other governance in in response to the climate crisis. So this is a and, and that's why I'm so passionate about trying to get farmers into a leadership position because I see the potential and the opportunities if we can make that happen. Um, Matt, thank you. Josie, why don't you just uh, just really quickly tell Matt and the listeners about the symposium that you're putting together, including the date and the location and, and that kind of thing. Oh, sure, we're, well, basically we're, um, 
we're coming together under the banner um, that we're calling the Northeast Healthy Soil Network, and we're terming it based on the the policy that's circulating the Massachusetts State House called the um, the Healthy Soil Action Plan, and you know there's similar policy, you know, taking shape in Vermont and Maine and New York. It's not necessarily as open to farmer input and opinion as we would like it to be. So our idea was to host a symposium out of Tufts University in Boston. It's taking place February 20th to the 21st, and it's going to be a policy making input session that we encourage farmers and conservation district reps and NRPS uh, members to attend and just work together um, to draft concrete statements of what they would like to see included in the policy to gain them the real world support that they need with their boots on the ground. So that's going to be in February 2020. Yeah. And can I can I ask how how much does does a discussion about climate and climate action figure into those policy efforts? That's a really good question. I think the the northeast states are pretty much aligned with how progressive they are especially at this point, we've had some governor changes and now pretty much all the Northeast governors agree that, that climate action should be a priority of their state plans and the rest of the government activities following suit. So we, we tried to steer away from making it a climate action conference just because our previous discussions about soil organic carbon measurement and reward systems were too simplistic for our farmers to feel like they were going to generate the fund streams that they actually needed. So we wanted to have a, a symposium about ecosystem service generation and environmental service generation more generally, and not just about carbon. That's the reason that we, we moved away from it being a climate action symposium and more of a soil health, environmental health symposium. Right. But the work that's been doing at the State House, the people that have been developing the, the, the soil, the healthy soil policies, um, would you say that that climate has been part of that discussion directly or more on the side? It's been part of the discussion directly, just considering that the stimulus for the policy in Northeast states, like the New York Climate Action Grant, literally they were grants provided for climate change adaptation in the ag sector, or the main activity that's going on is related to the main climate table governor's initiative. Um, so pretty direct climate relationship, just, you know, there's no definitive agreement that we're going to be able to measure the soil right. carbon to the extent that that we can directly incentivize. <laughs> right, right, and then we got to figure that out. Yeah, right? that's definitely. a that's a that's a research question that is absolutely has to be figured out. What drives me crazy in the Midwest is that there are a whole bunch of soil policy development at the state level that are intentionally not talking about climate. Like they're making the choice that we're just going to talk about soil health. That's that's what farmers will engage with. And and if we follow that that game plan, we're essentially saying we're going to do this around a problem that doesn't have a lot of resources because we can't talk about the problem where all the resources are. Mm -hmm. And that is like junior high logic, stupid. Like a junior high kid can figure out like, oh, if the money is there to solve a problem, but we're not going to talk about that problem for political reasons. We'll talk about this other problem. The money isn't going to come, right? <laughs> research, the research that's needed to make sure that the healthy soil, like, and so that's bad for farmers. It's bad for rural communities. But the most important thing is it's bad for the whole planet. 
because we're then not we're not unleashing the power of farmer innovation to solve the problem. So we won't get there fast enough. So it's 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 wrong on so many levels for anyone to to think that in the climate crisis to focus on soil health without making the link and figuring out how to connect that to, to, to the climate benefits. Um, uh, Matt, let me come in here for a second. Josie, th thank you for that. So what are those dates again, February? Yeah, February 20th, 21st. And we'll try to get you know the results of our discussion up on a website. Hopefully we even do make progress with the soil carbon testing issue. We have the Northeast Organic Farming Association working really hard on it. So if, if there are any exciting updates, I'll be sure you, you hear about them, Matt. Okay. All right, Matt, excellent, Josie. Uh, thank, you. thank you very much. And, and Matt, I, I, I think at the very least, you know, maybe you could make a video or something like that or beam in and give some, <laughs> give some thoughts for the group. We'd appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Josie. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Matt. Um, okay. So, so, Matt, so you just heard from uh, my colleagues, Carl and Josie, um, each working on different aspects of this effort. And... Um, and Josie is affiliated with Tufts University, which um, has a program called G-Day. That's Global Development and the Environment. And it's really excited to see, it's exciting for me to see a university wrapping itself around, um, you know, a, a soil health policy effort. And and the whole question about whether or not um, to talk about climate, you know, even in the Soil for Climate group. I mean, that's the name of our group, Soil for Climate. But, but we have these debates, right? I mean, everyone who's watching knows that. And um, the ir irony from my point of view is frankly, some of the best practitioners, some of the people who are doing the best right. global warming, don't even believe global warming's a problem or it's so politicized, it's a UN conspiracy or whatever. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I don't even care. I mean, just keep doing what you're doing and, right. uh, and you're not gonna turn down the check for the carbon you're drawing down. So, Anyway, the point is we're not going to solve that problem today, um, but but it's an evolving conversation. We all need to we all need to be part of it. Um, Matt, can you can you see the questions that are coming in there? I, and, I can. Okay. Well, so I just want to say a few words about Iowa and um, and and my own uh, view on that, and maybe you can find a question that that you want to address. And you know, we in the few minutes we have left. Um, in, in 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 the video earlier that was introducing um, that was introducing Matt um, from the Today Show, uh, he said, "Well, Matt believes that Iowa can help solve global warming, or Iowa farmers can help solve global warming." I just want to reinforce that. That's sort of the whole message of Soil for Climate: is that farmers around the world can help solve global warming. Right. And but but the thing about Iowa that's so unique. Is that Iowa? Well, it's not only the first, you know, caucus in our in our national presidential elections, but it literally is right in the middle of the country, and it literally is uh, the state that used to be 100% tall grass prairie. 100%. I mean, when they talk about tall grass prairie, where it used to be, when you think of the archetypal, archetypical images of the buffalo and whatever, that's Iowa. Right. And and today Iowa is almost in you know, it's predominantly in soy and corn. And so, and to me, Iowa really is the linchpin. It's like, as goes Iowa, so goes the world. And so, right. and so the fact that, I mean, 
uh, I had these thoughts long before I even knew, you know, of your work, Matt. In fact, we have a um, a, a colleague named Ridge Shin, and, and he has a company called uh, Big Picture Beef. We did a webinar with him almost two years ago, and he said, and I quote, give me Iowa and I'll change the weather, right? <laughs> How's that for a phrase? Give me Iowa right. and I'll change the weather. And the thing is, it's not it's not just hyperbole. If you if you really change the the uh, biology and the water cycles and the reflectivity um, in the middle of the country, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, um, um, uh, you literally you literally will change the weather. You know, you'll change the high and low pressure systems. You'll change how the Gulf streams move across the country. So it's not even just a matter of how much carbon gets drawn down. Um, you, you there are other factors going on as well. All right. Well, I just wanted to put in that, and you know, hopefully, also giving you an opportunity to read some of the questions coming in. Uh, are there any you want to uh, address right now? Yeah. Just in response to what you just said, it is really about carbon farming. So we have ten thousand years of history that we can draw on agriculture. And if we think about for most of that history, the problem to solve is food. But in the last fifty years or so, or seventy years. The problems that we're using to solve with agriculture has expanded. And now the really big problem in front of us is carbon farming as a solution to the climate crisis. And so we do have to figure that out. If we just step back and let nature do its thing, it could support, I don't know how many billion people on the planet. We needed to manage and accelerate those cycles with the practice of agriculture to increase the productivity around food. We need to do the exact same thing to increase the cycles and the productivity in which we can uh, capture carbon. And, and so it is not just stepping back and letting nature take its course. It is leaning in and using human ingenuity to accelerate those processes. And you're right. If we did that in Iowa, it would be unbelievable with what we could do uh, because Iowa is so productive because of you know, those thousands of years of prairie that build up all the soil. Um, I wanted to answer this question. It said, my number one question remains, how do we address and change the psychology of farmers as they are prisoners of their attitudes, values, judgments, and, and, and et cetera, about their behavior change? And that is exactly what we're doing with a strategy of instead of changing those farmers' minds, right? Because once you've decided you've got the answers and you're going you're gonna to debate somebody, you're going to change their mind, you're going to show them that they're wrong, you're going to show them how they're right. That's a, that's a losing battle. But if you can engage in a conversation and invite them into a conversation to, to say, how can you solve this problem? Well, there's 40% of farmers in Iowa who say there's no problem to solve. Okay, I don't worry about them. I'm not spending any energy trying to change their mind because that's a lost cause. Every, every penny of money and every second of time is wasted. But the other 60% that are at least interested in being part of this, I can, I can invite them, and this is the religious, this is the spiritual part, I can invite them into action through who they are versus changing who they are. And so inviting them as farmers, as problem solvers, as stewards, as people who feed other people, as citizens who have a political voice, I'm inviting them in that in that identity to be part of the solution. That then becomes transformative. They can they can move into seeing themselves in the future and how their farm connects 
and they will make changes. I mean, that's what we do. We change as farmers all the time. But if somebody tells us to change is different than being invited into a system and a process that, that you know, is inviting our change. Unfortunately, that dynamic was used very effectively at the end of the fossil fuel era to get some really bad systems in place that are very environmentally leaky and that have taken farmers out of the innovation and, and, and now we're in this trap. But the path out of the trap isn't to tell people how wrong they are, but to invite them, you know, in kind of a Tai Chi way of inviting them to see themselves as part of the solution and that they don't have to walk the gauntlet of blame and, you know, becoming uh, a different political ideology. It's like, no, you're a Republican. Bring the best Republican solutions to this problem. You're, you're a commodity farmer. You grow mostly corn and soybeans. Bring the best solutions you have. And you're going to have to make some changes. But And maybe you're going to have to get your neighbor who's got cattle to be part of your system. And he's or she's going to have more cattle. And you're going to have more productivity. And we're going to be sequestering carbon. So the system will change, but not like getting rid of it and starting over. It's going to change the way agriculture always changes, building on what we've already done and improving it. Hey, hey um, I nominate Matt Russell for Secretary of Agriculture. <laughs> All in favor, hit the uh, hit the up button. Right, right. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love, I, my, Pat and I love where we live, and we are not planning to make any changes to our careers or lifestyle that interrupts our ability to manage 110 acres and live in community in Iowa. So that's that's my that's my non-answer to uh, the invitation. <laughs> Look, you can just tell a commute in one day a week. All right, listen. Uh, being sensitive to the time, there is another really good question. Let's let's just get to that one, and then I have a, a few points. Um, and and I'm sorry, I don't see the user's name here who asked the question. Um, but it says carbon markets have been around for a while, but they haven't produced a carbon price. It can make a difference in farmers' incomes. Why not work through the USDA programs farmers are already using? Oh, spot on. Yes, we have all these programs. And how do we use what we have and, and innovate and adapt and change them so that we can start doing this? And, and our, my argument, argument is that it's both and. It's smart public policy and markets. And if you only do one or the other, you're leaving half the solution on the table. So if we use public policy to help farmers, you know, do the research, figure it out so that we can actually make the claim for what we're doing and innovate to that and use public policy to get us there and then hold the foundation, right? Then we are set up in five or 10 years from now as these markets emerge to really be able to leverage a lot more resources in, in the marketplace as well. Okay. It, it, it's not an either or. We have to use USDA programs while these markets evolve. Look, they're going to evolve anyway. Yeah, um, and state programs too. So I'm not under. I'm not saying that state programs aren't important. There's there's going to be a lot of innovation at the state level. There needs to be that as well. Okay. Listen, we're having a problem that's a good problem to have, which is frankly there are a lot of really good questions. We can see them coming in. You know, we don't have a, a lot of time, but but the, this is an engaged group and. Uh, Carl and I and Josie and everyone involved with Soil for Climate is really honored. This is a good problem to have. Um, Matt, you know, if you would, in the coming days or weeks, to answer some of these questions via, via the chat, uh, that would be great. We'd really appreciate it. 
Um, and again, you know, soft for climate. This is what we, this is who we are. This is where we live, right? This conversation with Matt right now, the, the science, the policy, the practice, we didn't get into the science that much in this talk, but you know, we've had this conversation before. Um, please support us, frankly, um, we need support. Uh, if someone wants to be a, uh, an underwriter for this type of um, media outreach, we would greatly appreciate it. So far, our main underwriter has been Nutiva, Organic Hemp and CBD, but we need others as well. Uh, we sell hats. Everybody loves the Soul for Climate hat. Uh, they're available on our website. Um, and um, just wanted to just do a fun little personal shout out, if people don't mind. Um, just in the closing comments, this is my father with Alan Savory on the right there. I wonder if we can uh, if we can change this. Well, anyway, you you get the idea. And today is my father's birthday, so happy birthday, Dad! And um, you're a hero, and you're a scientist, and you know, the fact that my dad, who's a, a, literally a laser scientist and works at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, one of the most, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, <laughs> the highest level type of technical university, he gets this immediately. He understands right. immediately is, is real soil so solution, grazing a solution. No, no, um, no pushback at all. You know, it was literally one of the smartest people in the world. He just gets it immediately. So I invite the ranchers out there who are conservative and don't think climate is real. Like, come on, guys, climate is real. The climate problem is real. And I invite the uh, the, the people who uh, think we need to just have plant-based uh, food and don't understand the role of grazing to build soil. Like, no, we do. It's, it's real. And yes, and Alan Savory's approach is absolutely essential and the science is bearing it out. And 2020 is gonna be an important year for all that. So um, I guess, uh, so happy birthday, Dad. I just thank you for uh, indulging me and uh, wishing my father a happy birthday. Honestly, when he met Alan Savory, it was, it was a big deal for me because those are two men who I respect a lot. Um, okay, so uh, with that, I guess it's time to uh, sign out. Matt, do you have any, um, you know, last words for us. Just uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this discussion and for all the people that are that have jumped on. Um, there is so much opportunity, but it's only going to happen if people, particularly farmers and those who support farmers, see themselves as leaders and and do what it takes to become leaders and, and, and leverage the opportunities to shape the future of how agriculture solves this, helps solve this big problem. Okay. So, oops. It was a little for some reason. Um, so anyway, saying goodbye for myself and Carl. Um, fortunately, Josie is not on the line right now, but I know she would extend her appreciation as well. Uh, thank you so much, Matt. Carl. Thank you, Matt. Okay. All right. Thanks, thanks, thanks everyone. Bye-bye. This is automatically archived on Facebook. Feel free to, to share it and, and all that good stuff. Okay. Love you. Bye-bye, everyone. See ya.